go on a <laughs> journey. It's always scary to use the word long, isn't it, when you're dealing with a sermon? Get ready to go on a um, extended. We won't use the word long. We'll just say extended. Um, journey as we talk about communion. And I've uh, been meaning to do this for a while, and um, this seems to be a good opportunity to do it. Please do read, continue to read in the book of Isaiah. Um, you're, you're going to read scriptures about Advent, about this Messiah who's to come. You're going to be reading that here this week. So I want to talk to you about communion. And, and in this, um, Andy, I need my screen back there. In this um, topic uh, are contained a lot of um, important doctrine about what you think about yourself before the Lord, and that transfers over into what you think of others in the Lord, or brothers and sisters, or what we might refer to as the body. So, um, what we're going to try to do today is try to understand what communion is, um, because it is often badly defined and wrapped in mysticism. And I hope that we're able to, I'll talk more about that in just a minute, but I hope that we're able to um, uh, set some of that straight, Lord, helping us before we're before we're done. We're going to look at the Old Testament. We're going to look at the New Testament. We're going to kind of trace the roots of this thing. And I hope, again, as we're finished, that we'll give us some practical things to go with as we as we move forward. So I mentioned earlier we're going to talk about faith. We're going to talk about covenant. So let's let's begin with covenant. And we'll read this. We'll read some of these passages in just a minute. But as you know, when Jesus instituted this and uh, and, and shared it with his disciples, he said, "This is the new what covenant in my blood." And we often refer to that um, that use that terminology when we talk about this. Sometimes we say Old Testament or Old Covenant and then New Covenant. So we, we, we kind of refer to that and we have kind of a line of demarcation. A covenant is more than a contract. So whenever you hear that marriage is a contract, it's wrong. A contract is made between men. And because men make it, men can cancel it. As a matter of fact, almost every contract... And I would, you'd probably be hard-pressed to find one that went on into perpetuity. Almost every contract has written within it how you get out of it. And one of the things that I have to do is some, one of my other responsibilities is sign contracts. And one of the things we do with that is the, the attorney that we have always looks for the out. In other words, if we don't like the way you're doing the work, how do we get out of it? How long does it take? Is there a penalty? Okay, And every contract will have a thing like that in it. You, most of you in here who have bought a home had a mortgage. 
How many know what a mortgage is? Do you know the root word is death? <laughs> so when, when somebody dies, they often go to a mortuary. Okay? It's the same. That M-O-R-T is, comes from the same place. And a, a mortgage is a contract that at one point will what? Die. Hopefully. <laughs> you know, don't go get a second and a third on top of it or, or it'll keep going after you're dead. But that's what it means. It ends. Then that you fulfill the, oblig- you fulfill the responsibility, you fulfill the obligation, and the thing ends and it no longer has that. Now, in a covenant with, and, and <clears throat> we can't go deep into this today when we talk about marriage, but in a covenant, the only way out of it is to what? Die. In some instances, there's a, there's a way that it can be violated, and we, we see that when we talk about marriage in the New Testament. Those are the two ways. Somebody broke it, the other person broke it, or the other person died, and you're, and you're free from it. A covenant is not man's rules, it's God's rules. And because God institutes it, God is the only one who can say that it's over. So those things that I just said to you about marriage and it being a covenant are laid out in what God said marriage is supposed to be. God's rules, that's how it functions. And when men would make a covenant, they would draw God into it. So... With a covenant, each party brings something. And as we, as we look down through this, you're going to see how important this is. Now, I, I, to time does not permit me with all the rest of this stuff to go back into the Old Testament and look at covenants. There's a great example in, in um, the book of Genesis where God makes a covenant with Abraham. So each party would bring something and... When they made that covenant, depending upon the type of covenant it was, there would be an exchange. When, when David and um, Jonathan made a covenant, each became a brother of the other. And often during the ceremony of these Old Testament covenants, the people would exchange places. So someone would stand here, someone would stand there, and in the, in the exchange of the covenant, they would change, they would pass each other, and each would be on the other side. That man's families now became this man's families. That man's enemies now became this man's enemies, and vice versa. That's what a covenant did. It united people together in such a way that it, and, and it, it couldn't be broken. Almost all of these covenants, folks, were sealed with blood. Now, let me get some input from you guys here. What was the Old Testament command to the Hebrews about eating and drinking blood? <laughs> it was garbled. <laughs> what did you say? Don't do it. It was forbidden. When uh, and, and, and there's just so many customs that, that are connected with this. And it, again, I could get 
you could do a whole message on just how wonderful covenants are, that God would make a covenant with us in the first place. And we'll talk some about that as we move through here. But they used to seal Old Testament covenants in the neighboring lands. They would seal it with blood. They would put their blood or they would put the blood of an animal and they would drink it. They would mingle it with wine. Every covenant usually, especially the big ones like marriages and joining of families, would end up with a feast. And they would drink that blood, put that blood in, and they would drink it. Now you say, well, the Jews weren't allowed to do that, but they were allowed to have wine. Some of you have seen ancient weddings, okay, where the bride and the groom would do what with their arms? They would lock arms. And what are they doing? They're symbolizing this exchange of places as they drank. Some of you have seen old movies where uh, of Native American weddings where they would actually cut themselves and bind themselves so that their blood mingled. That's one of the places where, I don't know if I can, there we go, got it off. This is called a what? A wedding band. Hmm? What? Band. Okay. <laughs> Not a band with a drummer, but a band as a what? A binding. So there's all kinds of symbolism that's involved in all of this covenant business. In the last, um, in Jesus' last supper, and when in our communion we replicate a Passover meal. So, um, let's look there. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 12. And let me, we'll go from Old Testament, we'll go to the New Testament, and we'll go to the epistles. And we'll look at all this quick and we'll see if we can get ourselves a really good understanding. Because, um, or at least as best as possible. In Exodus chapter 12, we're going to read the first 13 verses. Jump in with me when you get there. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Now again, there's, you know, I'm going to get, (laughs) if I keep getting sidetracked, I'll never get done. But this was the month of their deliverance, folks. And God said from now on, this is the first month. And then he gives them some instructions. Tell all the congregation of Israel, on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of the persons, according to what each of you can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of a year old, and you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. By the way, it uses the word assembly. Were they together when they did this? And the answer is no. They were in households. They were all in their households except for those Households that were too small to consume a lamb. And then they they met with the neighbors and they met in one of their homes. And by the way, they were in Egypt when they did this. They met in one of their homes 
And so they were in assembly not because they were all together, but because they were all doing the same thing at the same time. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lintel of the houses in which they eat. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and a beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, there's more to be read there, and I won't read more of it. You can, you can read more about that later. You can read in chapter 13 and see more. You can read where God gives them the command to make this a perpetual remembrance. They're to do this every year. Year after year, the first month from the 10th day, they watch that lamb. On the 14th day, they have it, and there will be seven days of unleavened bread. So I'm not going to go into all of that, but you can read how, how all of it works. So this is, of course, a picture. It foretells the lamb of God that John the Baptist said, Behold the lamb of God, remember, who takes away what? The sin of the world. This is a, this is a, a foretelling and a foretaste of what we see later when we see the sacrificial system set up that God gives to Moses. That hasn't happened yet. That God gives to Moses and, and that lamb that is sacrificed. So this blood that is shed that's on those doorposts protects them from spiritual death. Protects them from physical death. Protects believers from spiritual death. And also, I want to remember, who died that night? Anybody remember? I, I read it. Firstborn. All the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And if we understand this correctly, if anyone was foolish enough not to do what God commanded, the firstborn of that house died, whether they were Hebrew or not. Of all of their possessions, their flocks and everything, the firstborn died. And of course, the firstborn points to Jesus. His death and his resurrection. Now, I want to ask you a question that will come up a little bit later. And um, you can just kind of think about it. Think about it. When Jesus met with his disciples and they had Passover, or if you were a, a modern-day Jew and they still have Passover meals today, still do it. As a matter of fact, you can get some people who are well-versed in this to come in and do a Christian thing, and they'll tell you what the bitter herbs mean and, and what the blood means, and they'll, they'll relate all of that to Christianity. But when they, when they do that, when these Jews every year remember the Passover, are they being re-delivered? Is, are they once again escaping the death of the firstborn? Are they once again being led out of Egypt? Rhetorical, we'll come back to that. Now, let's go to the New Testament. 
The Last Supper that we normally think about with Jesus and his disciples is found in all of the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not found in John. And um, there's a there's a meal in John, but it doesn't describe it in the in the in the same way. And I won't get into all of the intricacies of that. And some some people think there's some timing difficulties with that. I'm not really sure about that, nor am I concerned about it at this at this particular point. What we do know is he met with the disciples. It talks over and over again in each of these gospels that it was their Passover. Where do you want us to set up the Passover? So, it says in verse 26, it says, Now as they were eating, I'm in Matthew 26, by the way, if I didn't tell you that. Matthew 26, 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. Take, eat, this is my body. So, we got to know right away that this was a special a special bread. I don't know that it was any different than the other bread that was on the table. But they were eating. And so they were eating bread. But at a certain point, Jesus took the bread, the Passover bread that was there, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, and said, this is my body. I mean, you're with me here so far. All right. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Now, the cup did not have blood in it. It had wine in it. Again, we already mentioned this. Jews were forbidden to drink blood. Now, um, I, I, I'm not going to turn to it for sake of time. But if you want to read John chapter 6, we'll go back, just go back a little bit, and you can read John chapter 6. And in, in, the, in the book of John, we have these wonderful I am statements. Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. Okay? And one of the I am statements, he says, I am the what? I am the bread of life. And the, he's teaching the crowd, and, the, and the, uh, the religious leaders who were there took issue with him. And they asked him questions, and he, and he said something to this effect, and I'm paraphrasing this, is if, if you eat me, you'll have eternal life. And he said, what, they said, what kind of bread do you have that's better than what Moses gave us? Was that manna? That they, he says, and Jesus tries to explain to them in his somewhat cryptic way, because he knew they didn't believe him, about the bread. And at one point... He says something that if you want to be my follower, you have to what? You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. How many know this is in Scripture? And what happens when he says that? Remember? They all leave. So much so that Jesus turns to the disciples and say, are you going to leave also? Turns to the twelve. And, of course, it was in that point that Peter, always willing to say something, <laughs> said, said, Lord, we don't, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
And Peter's statement almost betrays the fact that we would like to leave too, but uh, we don't, you know, we don't understand all this stuff. We just know you got it, so we're hanging with you. Why did the crowd leave? Because all of a sudden, Jesus was asking them to join this covenant with him. To eat his flesh and drink his blood to get into that permanent sort of relationship with him that I laid out for you earlier, like David and Jonathan had. His enemies, his enemies. His, his wealth, his wealth. His debt, his debt. It all became commingled. He was asking for a lifetime commitment from a bunch of people who, who looking at it on a superficial, worldly level and not seeing anything spiritual in it other than he wanted them to commit to him forever and ever. And they left. And it was Peter, in his somewhat confused statement, who tied eternal life to it. Where can we go? You've got the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? <laughs> so when we see Jesus taking this bread, and, eat, and again in Matthew and Mark and in Luke, he takes his bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, he gives it to the disciples. He said, take, eat, this is my body, and this is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, this whole thing is being fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. Whatever Passover was is being fulfilled in Jesus the Cyrus. Now let me ask you a question. What does it mean as often as you do this? Pardon me? Whenever. Whenever? Okay, yeah. I mean, does it, is it monthly? Is it daily? Is it weekly? Is it whenever you sneak a cookie? What does it mean when it says, do this in remembrance of me? Talk more about that in just a second. Uh, let's, let's, let's look. Now, we've looked at the Old Testament. We've looked at the Gospels. Let's go to the New Testament. And let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You know, that's what I wrote down. It doesn't sound right. Oh, it is right. Wonderful. <laughs> I surprise myself sometimes. I wrote down the right, right, the right scriptures. Um, I'm going to back up to verse 17. Because the context is important. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Wow. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. 
So there's a little context of what was going on. For I received in the Lord that which, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here the apostle is applying what he knew about that last supper, that he wasn't there. Remember, he was, he was the apostle born out of due time. But it was told him or delivered to him. That's kind of what he's communicating there. It was communicated to me. This is what happened. So he is in part correcting their greed and their gluttony. Now they had all sorts of, and when you read, uh, by the way, 12, 13 to 14, you'll talk, you're going to read more about their selfishness. Especially when you get into chapter 14, he talks about spiritual gifts and which is the better and what part of the body is better. And he gets into chapter 14 and they're, they're getting up in, in meetings and they're having a I'm the best kind of program. You know, it'd be like if someone stood up over here and, 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 and gave a testimony and someone else said, well, that ain't nothing. And he stood up over here and gave a testimony and they were, go, and they were having comp, kind of competitions going on. That's what the context of chapter 14 is about. There was all kinds of carnality in that church. So when he reiterates to them what this um, Lord's Supper is supposed to be, part of the context is dealing with their greed and their gluttony. They were in it for themselves. Now that's a point that we'll come back a little bit later. Now, I want to ask you a question. You guys ready? Quiz time. How many have been listening? Okay, how many have not been listening? Okay. Some of you aren't listening now and don't know where to, how to vote, so it's, it's all right. Well, it doesn't matter because what I'm going to ask you I haven't talked about. So it doesn't matter if you're listening or not. As I read these passages from Exodus, from Matthew, and from 1 Corinthians... What was promised to the people who engaged in these meals? Okay. I'm gonna have I'm gonna have George qualify that and explain that here in a minute. Let's see if there's anything else. Any other answers? Since I said that, no one else is gonna say anything. Pardon me? How about calamity if they go to uphold their side of the bargain? Okay. Calamity? Life? Nothing? nothing? Who said nothing? Pardon me? Remembrance. Remember. Remember is a promise? Okay, but that's not a promise. That is what they were told to do. They were to do that in remembrance. Cheryl, what are you going to say? There is, a, there is a passage that says 
Actually, it says it, I think, in each of them. I, I, I read them all. I can't remember anymore, folks. That he wouldn't do it again until he wouldn't eat this meal until he, he did it again in the kingdom. And it does say you proclaim the Lord's death, what, until he comes. That's a, that's a promise by insinuation. Now, life, and life was, let me rephrase this. Death was the repercussion for not doing it. So in that way, you can say, yes, life was a promise. If you didn't put the blood on your door and eat the sacrifice inside the way it was supposed to be, then you would, what? Die. The firstborn would die. But I didn't find anywhere where anything was promised. I didn't find any place where God says, I'll do this if you do that. Now that's important as we move through here, so we'll talk about that here again in a second. Now, let, go with me to the book of Galatians. Ooh. Every one of us, folks, have, well, I shouldn't say every one of us, a lot of us have gone to church for years. And we've heard all sorts of things. Some of them we've heard are not correct. Listen to verse 1 of chapter 3 of the book of Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians. So right away you know he's, he's questioning their judgment, okay? Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Now that was, that was a question, but it was a rhetorical question, okay? Verse 3. Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And he's talking about the persecution and difficulties they went through. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, there's a, there's a lot to untangle there. and But I, I want you to see that what we're dealing with here in our walk with the Lord is a walk of faith. Not of works. What did Abraham do? Abraham did what? He believed what God said. He didn't, and, and that's, that's what made him the father of faith. And, and, and Paul in Romans very explicitly says it, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. Abraham was righteous because he believed what God says. So he's the father of all who believe. 
Jesus stood before Thomas and said, Look, you weren't here earlier today, or you weren't here last week. Put your hand, your finger in my hand, and put and your hand in my side. And Thomas fell before him and, and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Well, blessed are you, Thomas, but more blessed are those who believe and what? Have never seen. We walk by faith, not by sight and not by works. And that's what Paul is trying to, to emphasize here. He says, how do you, Galatians, how were you saved? You, I preached about Jesus and, and he was portrayed in your eyes. You, you actually saw it in your eyes of faith. You saw him crucified and you came to him by faith. Now how do you stand and how do you walk? You can't, you, you're not going to get mature in the flesh. You get mature by walking in faith. So here's a concept. And let me share this with you before we go on here. In, and I, I know we're, we're going long here. So hang with me. Um, if you get hungry, there's probably some food back there. Um, <laughs> shouldn't have said that. All right. So here's the concept. We do not get from God because we do. He does it all. He is both sides of this covenant. And when you read in the, in the book of Genesis, that covenant with Abraham, it's so, it's so magn- it's, it's, I don't have time to read it, but... Abraham prepares all the sacrifices and he lays them out and he has to keep the birds away from him at night and all of a sudden God appears in the, in the shape of a torch and he moves one side and back to the other. He says, I'm doing both sides of this covenant. Paul reiterates that in the New Testament. He says, what did you do to, what did you do to receive your, your eternal life? You did what? Nothing. You believed. What did Abraham do to, to be counted as righteousness? He did Nothing. He believed. He does it all. We trust and we receive. Any idea that you have of seeking God comes from God. For in you, the scripture says, dwells no good thing. The heart of man is what? Desperately wicked above all things. Say, well, I was hungry for God. You were hungry for God because God put it there. I began to seek God in His Scripture. That was because that was God working in you to do that. You don't do that of your own. Now, there's so many ramifications of this and so many things we could talk about. You, you, uh, there are all kinds of things I see. Um, um, Hallers and I were talking about one. There's all kinds of things that I, that I see that I, I look at him and I say, man, I don't know, that's kind of iffy. And, uh, uh, you know, that's kind of iffy theologically and I don't know if they But folks, their people are seeking God. God's doing that. God's doing that. Pull them along. If it's incorrect, help them get correct. Help them get their feet on solid ground. But don't throw water on them. I kind of mixed metaphors there, didn't I? But did everybody understand that? Because you don't don't want to thwart what God's trying to do. Try to guide it and direct. But we don't seek God. It all comes from Him. And in this covenant, He provides everything. Folks, I see this all the time. I hear people say, this bad thing happened to me. I must have sinned. 
Yeah, you sin. You sin because you think you're important. You ain't that important, honey. Your, your, your life and the things that happen to you are not necessarily dependent upon you. Now, yes, they're stupid. If you go out and play in the highway, you're liable to get hit by something. A car, probably. You know, who knows? But, but the, the, the normal difficulties of life come to everybody. And, and so some people say, well, I, 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 must be, I must be missing God. I need to read more. I need to go to church more. And I need to pray more, etc., etc. You are missing God because you think you can do it and you can't. That covenant is made by God and He includes you in it. And what do you do? You accept it. I receive it. There are a lot of us out here who, who are flustered and tormented by our, by our spiritual existence because we think there's something we got to do. You can't add anything to the sacrifice of Christ. That's heterodoxy. That's bad doctrine. That's what that means. Okay, that's, okay good. I'm glad. I, I wasn't sure anybody, everybody was just kind of looking at me go, I thought, well, maybe everybody's asleep. It's been a long time. Okay, I still got like seven-eighths of a page. I am done with the red printing, though. All right, I want to read to you from a book. And we're, going to, we're back to communion. Now, I had to share all of that to get you back to communion. Okay? So, <laughs> you say to yourself, I'll never do communion again. Man, I didn't realize it was so complex. I'm just, I'm just going to read some of this, all right? So hang with me. Certain rites or ceremonies of the church are known as sacraments or ordinances. The Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, and some other churches recognize seven sacraments, baptism, the Eucharist, or communion, confirmation, marriage, holy orders, holy orders. We talked about that in the adult class. Uh, Penance and extreme unction. Most Protestants recognize only baptism and communion, holding that these two alone are specifically instituted by Christ. And everybody should say, Amen. The, those who view these rites as sacraments see them as means of grace. That is, grace is conveyed to the believer through participation. Those who use the term ordinance tend to see these rites as outward or visible symbols of an inward or spiritual reality. I mean, with me here so far. All right, so we had a big discussion a year ago, and we took some of the things out of our bylaws. Remember this? It had to do with ordinances and, and sacraments, and we tried to define that and took some of this stuff out. Now, I'm going to talk to you about communion specifically, and I'm going to give you some definition of what the, the um, major categories of Christianity kind of do. Please keep in mind that there are people who go to a Roman Catholic church who don't have one iota of an idea what their doctrine is. They go there and they listen to the priest. Okay? Most of them don't know that there was no Apocrypha. How many know what the Apocrypha is? Those Bibles in the Catholic, those books in the Catholic Bible that are not in ours, that those didn't get in there until the Council of Trent. After Luther. 
So Luther came and attacked the Roman church or attacked their doctrine and said, this stuff isn't in the Bible. So 30 or 40 years later, 30 years later, they came and said, well, it will be now. And they put those books in. So there's a whole continuum. And it's not just Catholics. It's Lutherans. It's, it's Protestants. It's Evangelicals. Okay? Communion, also called the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, or the Eucharist. By the way, what does Eucharist mean? Anybody know? The word literally means thanksgiving. And that's important. Or communion is a reenactment of the Last Supper of our Lord with His disciples before He was crucified. Bread and wine, or grape juice, represent the body and blood of Christ. There are four main views of communion, though in practice each has its variations. Number one, the Roman Catholic view. The Roman doctrine is known as transubstantiation, in which the substance of the bread and wine, when properly consecrated, is said to actually physically change into Christ's body and blood, even though the physical appearance remains unchanged. How many are with me so far? All right, so we all have an understanding of trans that we didn't have five years ago. <laughs> Transubstantiated. The substance changed. All right? The Lutheran view, called consubstantiation. This approach holds that Christ's body and blood are substantially present with the consecrated bread and wine even though those elements do not physically change. Okay? So con means with. So consubstantiation means that they're with them, but it doesn't really change. But the body and blood of Christ are, in, are under or over. And, you know, if you read about this, you're going to hear that. It's under it. So when you take it, you're taking the body of Christ. It's with it. Now remember, um, and this goes with all kinds of Protestant doctrine, it was developed as a counter to what was wrong in Roman Catholic doctrine. And over a period of time, we, we define these things differently. Number three, the Calvinist or Reformed view. This stresses the mystical spiritual communion between the believer and Christ through the Holy Spirit. The body and blood of Christ are held to, to be truly, but only spiritually, present in the elements. Um, you say that sounds a lot like the Lutheran view and it's close to it, but there are some subtle differences that Calvinists and Lutherans argue about. The rest of us don't care. Number four. The memorial commemorative view. Here the partaking of the bread and wine is a memorial in remembrance of Christ's atoning sacrifice. The elements are understood to be representative symbols of Christ's body and blood. His presence is not believed to be physically or substantially present in them. That's my view. That this communion that we partake of is a memorial. It is remembering what Christ 
has done. Over the multiplied years, we have moved away from grateful obedience to what's in it for me. Now, let me go back to this again. I closed the book, but the Roman Catholics believe when they, when they, um, I don't want to communicate this in an improper way and offend someone by using the wrong terms, but when they consecrate that blood and bread and it becomes Christ, you are actually partaking of his flesh. The Mass has been called a re-crucifixion of Christ. You go to it for forgiveness of sins. Now, I don't want to be cynical here. That's a little farther in my notes. (laughs) But if you can't be forgiven of your sins unless you go and take the consecrated element or you're there present when the priest does it, how many know you're going to go? Because you don't want to die the following week in your sin and spend a long time in purgatory. And Luther didn't get too far away from it because he said it's still there and you need it. So you've got to come and take it. And neither do the Calvinists or the Reformed people. They say you've got to come and take it. And when you look at some of the polity and the processes of these denominations, they expect you to come and get something from it. So let me go back to this. We, we have moved from grateful obedience to what's in it for me. A lot of the people that I grew up with who treat this as a commemoration also add things to it. So when you come, and I actually was taught this, when you receive communion, if you trust God, you'll have healing in your body. We, we no longer kneel broken at the foot of the cross. You know, awed by the sacrifice and grace that God would send His only Son. And, and, and even just a limited, without, with, with our blinders on, just looking at that, when we look at the, the, the complete uh, compendium of all that God has done from, from Genesis on, and, and we, under, we can read the book of the Revelation to all of it, and we look at it and we see it all focuses on that cross. And we come there, not, with, not bowed and broken, realizing that everything comes from Him, but, but we come with our hand out because we've got a need more conscious of our need than we are of God's all-sufficient gift? Why do churches do this? Because sinful human nature wants and lusts for meaning. We want, we want meaning beyond Scripture. We want, we want uh, people to approve of us, our organizations. So we're com- continually competing for approval and, and, and building our fences. Well, we do this differently over here. And, and, we do, and, we, and we want you to come, and we've got to have you come here on Sunday. And I'll go back to this. I said my cynicism was in here. We, we're the only ones who can do this. If you don't come here on Sunday, you're not going to get this. And it goes from all the way of the re-crucifixion of Christ and the Roman Catholics to, the, to my evangelical friends who are promising you special blessings if you do something. If you do something to get a blessing, you get no blessing. That's works. Amen. We come with empty hands. Little hearts of gratitude. 
Remember what Eucharist means? How, how did we get so far from that? Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. So brethren, if you'll come and serve us, we're going to partake of communion today. So you can't do that. It's right at the end of the sermon. (laughs) Well, I guess we can. We're going to try anyway. I know it's kind of different with everybody sitting at tables. And I want to encourage you as we partake to remember the words that Jesus said. Remember the words that the Apostle said. And, and I'm going to talk while all this is happening, so I hope you can focus with me. The reason I was careful to go to 1 Corinthians and chapter 11 and point out that Paul was dealing with their gluttony was because what they were doing in that church was all about them. God help us that we have churches today where it's communicated that this is all about you. That you partake of communion so you can get healing, so you can get blessings, so you can get prayers answered. So you can feel especially close to the Lord. Now I asked, I asked earlier, I said, what, what were the promises that were connected with this? And we, I couldn't really find any. I can tell you this. It is a command. I don't know how often we're supposed to do it. Remember we asked that? As often as you do this, what does that mean? Not sure. But it is a command that when we do it, we're to remember the body and blood of the Lord. We are to remember that God sent His perfect Son who lived a sinless life, who was completely not guilty, not worthy of the judgment that fell on Him. That was our judgment. Now, I want to try to balance this a little bit. The Lord wants us to pray. And the Lord wants us to seek Him. In a few minutes, we're going to have a time of prayer. We're going to ask for prayer requests. I already have a couple written on my paper. There may be some of you out here who have physical ailments, and the Lord's a healer. And it's okay to pray for that. You may, be, you may be making decisions. God can direct your steps. It's okay to pray for that. We're encouraged in the New Testament to pray. We're to, and we talked about this last week. We're to pray with thanksgiving. God already knows what we need. How many are with me here on this so far? Is there ever a time when we don't come with a need? Is there ever a time when our heart is focused only on what he has already done? Where we can bow before him in complete 
thanksgiving and remember what he's done? Those poor disciples, sometimes I look back and maybe you've been in situations where things are happening all around you and you don't have any idea what's going on. And I kind of think that's what was going on with them sometimes. As a matter of fact, they kind of told us that they didn't understand until later. So there they are, sitting in that upper room. Jesus has washed their feet, and they've had this communion, and he said, this is my body, and this is my blood. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. He said, now let's go to the garden. And they went, and they went to the garden. And they also, before this, I didn't read it, they had this interesting thing where he, they said, one of you is going to betray me. And they all looked around. Jesus actually talks to Judas about it. Go and do what you're going to do. You get to John, it's even more poignant. Because John 13 says, Jesus, knowing who he was, where he came from, or where he was going to go, took off his garment, wrapped a towel about himself, and washed their feet. I kind of wonder what was going on in all their heads. And yes, he did it for them. But as Paul states, he also did it for us. And yes, it's okay to pray for your needs, but I I suggest that when we come, we come to him in communion, not expecting something to happen because we had a little piece of bread. But we come doing this, remembering that his body was broken and his blood was shed. Heavenly Father, as we partake, If it's possible, Lord, by your Spirit, move us outside of ourselves for just a moment or two to a place of complete thankfulness for you and what you've done. Deliver us from thinking that there's something that we can do, that in doing this we have earned somehow earned your favor. Your favor was given before we ever understood the significance of this. We give you thanks. In your name we pray. Let's partake.